0: To from Nor to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons, a philosophy podcast about big topics in bite sized pieces. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education at Liberty University. And with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of philosophy and English at Genesee Community College. Art is an undervalued topic in modern society. While educational institutions slash their budgets for humanities, art remains one of the few things that separate us from the quote, animals. The definition of art is hard to pin down. Different genres of art can touch all of our senses. And where does the definition of art even start and end? Is cooking art? What about perfume making or clothing design? Today we endeavor to discuss not only what constitutes art, but also what constitutes good art. Definitions, environments, and speculations all play into how we perceive what art is. Alright, so we were just talking a little bit before we started and um art is really a it's going to be a very interesting topic and i don't even know if we're going to have enough time to cover everything that it it does but it like all other things in philosophy it touches all kinds of stuff but there's something else there that that needs defining and i think that i think it does come back to that that concept is it's something that makes us uniquely human you know and and so let's Let's start off with that. Let's, let's go down a, a historical um, rabbit trail and see if we can f- figure something else. So my first question is this. What do you think the purpose of the first art was? Ah. Well, that
1: one's... Now we're getting... It, we'll go back to the classical time. So the purpose of art in ancient times is an idealism... Uh, If we're talking about Western philosophical tradition, so that it's uh, larger than life, the ideal form, the 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 heroic form uh, for statuary or something like that, Uh, and and so symmetry and proportion are what we would want people to look like, ideally. The Platonic ideal of forms very much plays into the to the art of that of that time and then with that aristotle is talking about uh, art being imitative uh, it's the formal name is mimesis. Uh, so imitative art art to be good so to speak is uh, imitates life and and that we we have it has to have some effect on us that imitation so in tragedy so aristotle was essentially developing rules of critique uh formal formalism for art so that uh, he a theater production a, a play would encompass the amount of time that would be real time you know so if you it shouldn't be jumping years and years and years Okay, so there's, so the, 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 not the mimicry, but that's where mime comes from, the the imitation of reality, or the, the mirrored reflection of our psychological states and okay. our emotional states. And then we get up to the medieval times, and then the whole, as with everything else, 500s, 14 or 1500s, where the whole focus is on the relationship between the divine and the human. And so, uh, art is about beauty and virtue and leading one toward thinking about uh, the spiritual truths that traditional Western religion are promulgating. And then we we move forward and forward, and then it, it, then it gets really complicated because you have Schiller and Hegel and, and many other philosophers in the 1700s, 1800s. Uh, essentially dancing back and forth among the uh, idea of whether art is representative of the individual or art is representative of the collective spirit of the time and whether art is supposed to be, uh, a political and distanced and formal. When we get into the 20th and early 21st century, our own time, uh, feminist, Aestheticians, uh, feminist philosophers of art will say that men and gender issues have always guided the notion that art needs to be distant and formal and uh, subscribe to a certain uh, kinds of principles that it can't be political, that it can't be ordinary. And the response to that um, from the feminist uh, art historians and philosophers is, of course, a quilt can be art. If it, if the patterns and if the colors evoke an awe or a joy or a take one out of oneself, art can be practical. So when you're talking about perfumes and everything, then I'm not sure they would go as far as perfume because perfume would be an enhancement to what you would already perceive, but certainly an object, uh, the, the, the shape of your water bottle, for instance. Um, the ergonomics and the aesthetics that go into product making. Some people would still say, well, that's that's craft. It's not art because it's not trying to lift one out of oneself.
0: It's trying to create something that is pleasant and useful and that you want to own. Okay. So that's great because that covers... Now now we, you flip the tables on me normally I'm the one covering all of history and, and you have to slow me down. Now you've covered all of history so you have to slow me down. yeah, and I have to go back and say, all right, well, let's pick this apart some. I've got a million different things that, that popped into my head. so all right, well let's start let's go back to the very beginning and I'm we're going to get creative and go back beyond where you started. Let's go to prehistory. so we look at there's cave cave art so and you know you'll find scientists who say we found the, the earliest um cave art you know it's so many hundreds of millions of years old or whatever so what do you think the purpose of that was do you think do you think originally it was communicative or do you think they were attempting to create an aesthetic piece well, what What do you think was the purpose of these hand drawings or these animal drawings or things well you know i remember the f-
1: not the first time i encountered but when i was when a you know, as a kid in the caves of Lascaux, and and you'd see these the, the thought, as you said, of the hunters and people have developed all kinds of thoughts about what this might have been. Was was this a spiritual thing to try to represent the the buffalo or whatever the animals happen to be in order to draw them to you? That which is a, a cool idea. Uh, if it's if it's Bragging if it's saying, Look here's the hunter figure, and here are these, and this is and this is what I've gotten the not to diminish it, but the most recent uh, look has been because of DNA analysis on some of the the paint and so on that that these were kids defying their parents by going in and drawing pictures on the wall <laughs> of the home <laughs> <laughs> And and so they're suggesting that it was a, a countering, of was a rebellion against the parents' stories about the animals. And so you can see it as the hunter with the animals, and if you look at it and say, yeah, here's a kid mocking dad because he says he got these three. Right. And that just takes it way
0: out of the mystical spiritual. Right, but at the same time, that really kind of defines, I think there's something to looking at, like, the primordial origins of something, and even though if if it's so far in the past, you can't draw much information from it, what information you can draw does lend some critical insight into the origin of something. And I think that says something about it, because art typically throughout history has been a rebellious or a controversial or a boundary defining genre. So it only makes sense that it would come from, the origin of it would be something along, something those, lines. along those lines. Yeah, it's it's.
1: You know, you practice art, I practice art, and we'll get to that when when you when you when you take us there, but how can we not do it?
0: Right. <laughs> is is my thought. Yeah. So it is interesting to look back and think in those first you know, those first times was it something communicative? Or were you trying to tell somebody else something? Or was it an accounting sort of thing? This is a picture of things that I own, or was it meant to be imaginative and you know we're just celebrating ourselves sort of is it a memory thing
1: mm-hmm. look I, I did this
0: right
1: there were those drawings of the, the beasts that they were hunting was it like what we might do in keeping a, a journal or a sketchbook and, right. and and not expecting anybody else to see it because it was in the back of the cave and we don't know was it the home was it the the, the hideout for the teens what you know? yeah
0: <laughs> So even though there's not a lot of information there, I think I think it's kind of important to look at that, yeah. just because we're creative and imaginative creatures, and if we're going to talk about art, we should start out on that sort of fanciful footstep. You know, looking back, all right, well, what what is that thing? So let's heading back into where you, where you started us off in, in traditional times. That brings up a kind of interesting um, thing: aesthetics. You know, like, do you think there's a is there a difference between aesthetics and art? They're definitely inextricably intertwined, but is there is there a difference, or are they one and the same? I think that there's a, a, a difference because the art
1: that one creates might not be informed by a formal intellectual reflection on principles of aesthetics when one makes the art. We know this when a, a little one uh, takes crayons and makes something out of sheer joy, and we often we often bust the bubble on that the way we shouldn't because then we are applying aesthetics to the art that the little one has created. So what is the thing that an adult often almost invariably will say when a little one is done making a piece of work? What do oh, we say? Oh, that's beautiful. Yes, and then the second question. What is it? Right, <laughs> right, and that's the key thing. Even though we we say it's beautiful, and then we, we then we try to tease off for them so we don't hurt their feelings if they're because we assume that it's only representative, and so that's where we're automatically we're kicking it with aesthetics, and we don't even necessarily realize we are because because we're prioritizing or privileging that it must be representative or it's not art. Mm. We don't want those kids starting to do that abstract stuff that nobody can understand what it is. So, we're, what is it? Oh, and and so sometimes you, if you listen to kids, they'll sometimes you can even see a disappointment on their faces, and and they realize, oh, that's the game essentially, and so then they'll have to try to choose something that it's supposed to be because they aren't always thinking
0: right, that yeah. this
1: is a particular thing so to a a very young one art does not necessarily need to be representational but here comes the aesthetic adult who doesn't even know she or he's being that saying oh well art must be representational we start teaching them that without even realizing we're teaching them
0: that and thus limiting the expression right yeah that's interesting so yeah going back to ancient times you know it, it it really was it was it's kind of about that because, like you were saying, there's there's forms and there's shapes and there's those sorts of things, and I think that that's appealing to that um, that instinctive part of that the brain, probably what the little one is doing. Oh, this shape or this form or something is something, you know, th- thinking about Plato, that sort of thing. They're thinking, oh, this is inherent to the human experience. This sort of shape.
1: Right. Is it proportional? Right. Is it symmetrical? Is it something that we we recognize?
0: Yeah. So. And a, a big f- part of art back then is was humans, you know, human human forms. Human that. and God interactions, yes. And God. so, what's interesting about that is if you look at art across the globe, you'll see vastly different interpretations of what is considered um, beautiful in that regard. Yeah, there's the other thing, what's beautiful. Right, so you have statues of Venus, and if you look at them from Africa or... Europe or all these different places, she's going to take on a much different form. Oh yes, Earth Mother
1: figures, Venus, and, and you back to the primordial, back to the prehistorical or, or the ancient. Whether we're talking Far East, Middle East, um, Africa, or Native Americans, the, the the figurines uh, often women are, let's say, robust. Mm-hmm. Uh, men are. are large it's 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 not like the the way that we somehow privilege in cosmopolitan now so yeah so those those two but but you see you snuck in the idea of beauty art to be art it it has a, a symmetry and a proportion that we would then think is beautiful because it reflects what it is that we're seeing that we've privileged in the culture of that time back to to aristotle or the or the greeks but the word beauty just slid in there right so ah well if it's proportionate and symmetrical
0: it must be beautiful but the very fact that what we just talked about that the form covers pretty much every sort of figure human figure you could find, sort of throws the sense of beauty in the face of it. It kind of, you know, it kind of shuts Plato down a little bit, because it's saying, oh, well, this this form is beautiful, but then you have 300 pound or 90 pound women in all different places, tall, small, every single form you can think of. So it, it's really... Um, I mean, if you look at the statue, the the the, the male's
1: well, your arms, I mean, they're cut, they're chiseled, they're what, you know, that, oh, how many people in the culture were actually walking around like that? Probably not any more than right. we are now, right. because that was the ideal form. But what makes it ideal? We said, well, that's what should be. Well, if, why should it be? <laughs> that's that, and that's partly what aesthetics pokes at is why do we say
0: that this is ideal? And, that's something that comes into modern times i think that um the the feminist influence that you just mentioned is very um underplayed because for instance tonight me and my wife are going to go to see one of our good friends she's a female bodybuilder and so that's the sort of thing that if you if you look back at ancient statues you're not going to find female bodybuilders that's not something that developed until more recent times when you started to break down some of these um, gender constructed stereotypes you know so you know that's something that you w- wouldn't really occur to you you know like, I think people think of feminists in um, you know political influence and, and these sorts of things yeah, but it's, it's you don't think about our artistic influence yeah absolutely so, so there's a there's a one of the, the best critics
1: uh, aesthetics of aesthetics Estella Lauter and uh, she is she's the person who says okay so men or the patriarchal uh, political intent says we control art we always men always define the rules Aristotle defined the rules right Plato and so on and all the way up through and and said thus art is it must not have a political intent so art is not in our in the 20th century, art is not propaganda. Well, but some people started making art into propaganda. But but propaganda isn't apolitical. But for the most part, politics weren't supposed to play into art according to the rules. And yet, when you look at what the art was trying seeming to be extolling, there is a social political thing in there. But she was saying, no, she says, no. If art liberates us, and uh, uh, Iris Murdoch is another uh, feminist art uh, critic, historian, aesthete, says if, if, if there's a liberation of one's spirit, if there's a freeing of one's mind into a new place, if it's not just about mind, but it's about mind and emotional response, then, then it's art. And thus... Again, to go back to something we talked about before, I mean, I look at pieces that you have, that you have made, uh, the, and and I look at your the instruments. Now, I can look at that instrument. Is that a mandolin? No, uh, it's. I'm looking at a piece that is of thin. Uh, tell me about this. It's, this
0: is yeah. It's a it's a dulcimer. It's um, dulcimer. Some kind. Yeah. But I want you. To, but what would you describe the color as? Um. I don't know. It's kind of straw-colored, a little bit
1: light, and it has a thin and yet pear-ish uh, appearance with a, a a a neck that seems seemingly slightly longer than the body itself. So it it is it is a it exudes lightness <laughs> and of tone. But you also have it paired with a it looks like a watercolor, uh, which has tones that are uh, p- parallel or complement the tones of that dulcimer but you didn't necessarily intend to put them there that way but I look and I see that and therefore those colors are coming out and and the, the shape of the dulcimer and then the the sun at the bottom uh, and the moon at the top of the image makes me think of rising and the and the arm of the dulcimer, the, the head of the dulcimer makes one think of rising. So it live it there's a liberation in the pairing of those objects. There's a, an aesthetic pleasure in looking at the structure of the dulcimer itself. And a lauder and and Iris Murdoch, I think would would say, therefore, that's art,
0: even if you didn't hang it to be art. right interesting okay so wow we're 20 minutes in we haven't talked about anything that was on the list (laughs) okay i gotta uh, i'll try to be more disciplined it's good we'll just see if depending on the pacing if we have to make this into a two-part thing but so let's start um at the beginning of our show notes about uh constituents of art so we've we've alluded to it a little bit but let's take it head on talent is talent necessary to create art
1: That depends on a number of things, but most specifically, it depends on how important the audience is. So there are philosophers who say that if you are making art for an informed audience, then the expectations are going to guide the level to which you rise so talent is a really interesting word because it implies a set of skills but it also implies a measure of those set of skills as if we know what talent is so we have to take that word apart Mm. all right you have talents you 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 make cds you sing you write music Do you write music in notation
0: form? Um, Sometimes when I'm writing a song, I I can read and notate music to an extent. And sometimes that helps to develop a melody. Um, So sometimes I will utilize music theory. But lots of times um, that's more for a writing stage whereas in a performance sort of thing or as a final... Once I start fleshing something out, i I usually doing it by so some would say you might have you have a natural
1: talent for finding the music but that you don't necessarily have the highest end talent for formal notation right. and, ri- and writing the music yep. and you might say well but writing is more than just putting the notes on the you know and then you come back with that all right so what is talent
0: right there's yeah and people have a big argument about this with um, you know, people like to talk to me about who's the greatest guitarist ever, you know, sort of thing. And that's what it always comes down to is I always say, you know, look, and if you want to define it by technical talent, then you can probably find who it is. You can find somebody who has the widest knowledge of scales and modes and find somebody who can play the fastest and the most accurately and these sorts of things. You can quantitatively um, measure those things. But when it comes down to creativity or um innovative use of things that sort of thing it becomes completely and that's why you know somebody like jimi hendrix is that's who i think of as being the greatest guitarist ever but i will readily admit he's not the greatest technical guitarist ever i can think of 10 off the top of my head who are technically better musicians than him but i think when you take it as a whole and you look at was what he was doing innovative and new at the time was what he was doing, did it have some level of technical skill? Was what he was doing aesthetically pleasing? All of these, when you take it as a whole, I don't think anybody fills out all of the categories as well as he did. But That's that lucky. that has a large amount of t- personal interpretation because I am, I'm somebody... I like to think of myself as a Renaissance man, a generalist. Yes. I'm not good in any one category, but I like doing a lot of different things. So somebody who can somebody who can check off a lot of boxes appeals more to me rather than somebody who's the fastest guitar player that's that's all that matters if you can play flight of the bumblebees then you're the greatest guitar well that doesn't really mean much to me but to somebody else it might you know so you've just defined a you've just encompassed the word talent in such
1: a way you've just done many of uh, the history of aesthetics because what you've said is okay so you have this ability but if you have just this one ability that could be considered a talent, but is that going to be considered uh, artistic and aesthetically pleasing? Perhaps not. It may be an accomplishment, but it may not be the whole package. And and the whole package is what we would mean. So that's, that's where I would urge taking the word talent off the table and getting the word art back on the table. Because if we're saying, well, there might be an art in fastest playing of Flight of the Bumblebee. Perhaps and we, uh, but if it's more than that, the aesthetic says, "Well, makes us try to define." Well, what is this more? Is it because of what we perceive? Is it because when you get into the twentieth century, even from the, uh, Hegel onwards, some of the folks in that time were wrestling with: Is it audience perception that creates? The art is it more important for audience perception, or is the thing in itself most important? And that view vacillates every few decades.
0: Right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna cut in the order here. Normally we do the topic at the end, but I'm gonna bring it in now because it just is relevant, and I don't think we're gonna get to it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll do it now. Which is the question is can art be empirically defined? And this is something that I've I've been working, I've been writing, um, a book on this actually. And I think that what I've kind of zeroed in on is it comes down to three different things. And that's, you know, a a talent of some kind of a capacity, a context and an audience. And in, in the piece that I'm writing, I use an example of this, which is that let's say you're making toast, right? Okay. So you make, you make some toast. Whatever, maybe you you kind of burn it, maybe you put some butter on or whatever. Is that art? Well, no, nobody would nobody would think that that's art. But let's say that you know, you have all of a sudden there's a a giant group of people floods in your house and says, "Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Look what you've done. Well, is it art at that point? You know, because we, we hear about examples of this, you know, people in a modern art museum, leaving a water bottle on the floor or something coming back later. And there's dozens of people that, you know, all this thing. Well, that kind of says, all right, maybe there's a low. If you look at this as a, um, a Venn diagram or sliding scales or that sort of thing, maybe that has a low level of talent, but it appeals to a wide audience or it has a contextual thing. Maybe it there's some sort of shape in the toast that people see that sort of thing, so it has context and it has an audience, even though there's low talent. Whereas on the other end, you could have somebody in their house making toast, and maybe they use a Bunsen burner to exactly replicate the Last Supper, you know, and it's this beautiful thing, and it, it's it's very. But they never show anybody, and they just kind of throw it in the trash afterwards. What was that art? It had a high level of talent, but there was never any audience. But there, but there was, but there was context. But there was that one person. Yeah, the, your your own audience yeah, at that so point. Right. So I, I think that my opinion is that there's probably, if we're trying to come to an empirical definition, those are probably the three interacting qualities. If you have some measure of the three, the higher you can score on those three metrics, probably the more, um, the more likely people are to. To consider it art and the more likely people are to consider it good art if there's a level of but but there's not necessarily a need for to score high on all three metrics but you do have to score high on at least one or two uh, and I'm gonna I'm going to I'm going to challenge that okay so tell me the three metrics again all right so we had some level of talent or ability, some level of audience appeal, and some level of contextual information, whether it's historical or aesthetic or some sort of um, context for a piece. I've told you about this before, but I'm going to bring this up. So, so last,
1: last year, uh, at, uh, late, late spring, early, early summer, there was an art installation in Warsaw. It was done by someone who's recognized uh, internationally as an installation assemblage artist. Who spends part of her time in New Zealand or Australia? I do forget that, and part of the time in the hills of Dansville. Who was, uh, who did uh, workshops in uh, the winter time uh, in Perry, but then whose goal was to create an installation that would capture the uh, feel of Western New York winter. And it was to be in the park, you know, the little memorial park by the creek across from the Silver Lake restaurant, which is irrelevant for people who are listening to this, but in the center of Warsaw. So we have a, a, an artist whose abilities are recognized. We have a, a materials that are local, which was uh, barbed wire, which was torn paper, which was found objects from, from farms uh, and roadsides to create a you will had to walk around this piece in order to get the impression of the power of wind carrying things from houses demolished barns of incredible paper and plastic so she's using plastic bags of all kinds of we we waste so much with plastic is destroying so much and she was using the plastic to make weavings of uh, to suggest the environment And it was compelling, but you had to walk around it. I say it was art. People who have some sense of of the larger view said it was art. Local people were driving by, honking their horns, saying egregious things, shouting epithets, spitting. It was the worst of this local community in responding to this people were well i can just find a bunch of garbage bags and throw them all over this is an insult and 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 if if i and people were saying things online like well my child went to art school and she knows how to draw clouds and barns and you see because it all went back to the art must be only representative mm-hmm. and it must be only pretty and pleasant And that's just not the case so you had talent you had materials you had context and it was totally rejected well so was igor stravinsky's work when it first came out (laughs) musically right okay and 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 dance martha graham at first so yeah art if if one has to decide for oneself can art exist without audience appreciation
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and i think it can personally, but, uh, but if a group of people define, this is called artistic informationalism, partly artistic informationalism is an aesthetic approach, which says that schools, museums, critics, they'll tell us what art is. Well, of course, populism says, no, I know what art is by thunder. Art is a pretty picture with the yellow flowers and I can see the bumblebees on them. Okay. Why can't it be both? Why can't we look at it as encompassing a human expression which is taking us out of ourselves? Now, she didn't uh, the the two the two women who make that installation did not expect necessarily the 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 vehement and brutal response uh, of an unschooled public, but that's what they got. but it still created a response but 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 the trouble is that people weren't willing to engage in what art might be they retreated to the usual defensive position as I know precisely what art is
0: and this ain't it. Yeah. What's funny about that is I think that that in, is a, a very traditional part of art. It's what we talked about at the beginning, about it being something that is sort of um, groundbreaking and controversial and, and that sort of thing, you know? And I think that is a, that's a big element of art is that once art starts to lack that sort of thing, that's when you see the entire um, the entire state of the media take a new direction. Music is a good example. You know, in the 80s, things got more and more reverby and synth sounding and whatnot until people were like, you know what, everybody's doing this. And then grunge started where everybody dropped the reverb, dropped the synth, started playing really heavily distorted guitars. And then once that became saturated in the entire art. And something new happened and that's that's the the essence of art is once people become used to a certain aesthetic it ceases to be a groundbreaking sort of thing and and people move on. And that's and and the
1: people who move on are wanting fresh expression. But the people who just want to stay in their comfort zone People, you know, Schiller and others would say, "Okay, so they're not going out to the sublime." Art Schiller, for instance, would say art should be a combination of the rational and the spiritual, and 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 Hegel into into the sublime. So that and sublime can mean overwhelming uh, response that might be fright, uh, that that might be anger, something that shakes you sort of to the core that you moved out of yourself for a moment. When something becomes so familiar and comfortable and narrowed to, I only want the comfortable. You know, you talk about music. Here's, here's an, and this is an art music. It's just, it's an art conversation. You know, schools will have to end up doing the, the 10 most popular musicals over and over again. So everybody wants to be Shrek or, Mm. you know, the the sound of music or whatever it is. So that when, when someone goes to do a new, fresh piece that's not as well known, then immediately they start taking flag for it. Oh, we don't know what that is. We're not familiar with that. Well, that's what art is supposed to do, isn't but, it? You just said so. Yeah. And, and yeah, yes, let's, let's, let's see if we can get familiar with it. Let's see what it, fresh things it can tell us. But if you're, but if, so the, the audience mindset, if the audience primarily determines art, then you're less likely to have a continually expanding and thickening and layered and complex Reinvestigation of what art is, if the if the people who are just wanting comfort define all of it,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and it's a really I don't know appeal. You know what what appeals to people? It's it's something that's sensory and emotional, and intellectual and and spiritual. You know, like we've been talking about it. It really appeals to all. All aspects of what makes people human, and sometimes we don't even know what it is. So like my wife is a good example. So I'm I'm musical. I you know I play a bunch of different instruments. I do I do things in a bunch of different styles. You know I've done rock and alternative and classical and jazz and a bunch of different things. Um, my wife doesn't play any instruments. You know nothing like that. But every once in a while we'll be listening to music the thing. Oh, I I really like this song and. I'll admit I I've gotten to the point now where I, I I try to restrain it but there's been times in the past where I've you know I've lashed out this doesn't have any kind of talent of any kind I can say this because I'm an expert cuz I actually yeah. practice art and whatnot yes so what is it about th- this appeals to you I don't know I just like it <laughs> you know and but that's and that's the thing about art is that in, from a subjective viewpoint you can't say that that's not You can't say that it's not art. Well, this to somebody, this has some sort of meaning, some sort of appeal, some kind of thing. So, even if not to everybody, to somebody, this is art. To somebody, this is. Yes, because it has
1: evoked a response, even if the response can't be rendered easily into
0: words. Mm -hmm. And when, when I was talking about my guy making doing the Last Supper on toast, you said that there is an audience and it's and it's him. Yes. And that's something that you really have to be I feel like you have to be an artist to appreciate that. There's a there's a guy that I, I listened to some of his stuff, Josh homies the, the lead singer for Queens of the Stone Age. He said when he's talking about making albums that it's a what he likes about it is it's a snapshot of a point in your life. And that's exactly right. When I go back and I listen to an album that I wrote years ago, it is. It's a. It's a. It's a snapshot. It's like a. It's almost like a picture, but in it with a different aesthetic appeal. A different. There's a whole different memory structure associated with it than than with a picture or a video or something else. But it's just as real. It's just some something that is just. And is it just as important? It is, yeah. If nobody had listened to your CD, it was just
1: you and here in this in this lovely studio. If you'd made that and it moved you or you said, yes, this pleases me, is it art?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Because and cause there is stuff like that. There's lots of music that I've recorded that I've not released, not shown anybody. And it's not because I'm embarrassed or I don't like it. Because I I have songs like that, too. But there's songs that, as a matter of fact, I think one of the best songs I've ever written, I've never released. It's still on my computer, and I love listening to it. And I debate every once in a while when I go to do something, should I put this on there? But I never have, because... uh, from a creative aspect there's lots of different ways people create things some people stress over the tiniest details and do that sort of thing i'm exactly the opposite (laughs) i'm somebody who i'm very in the moment when i sit down lots of times as a matter of fact all of the cds i've done i've written them while i was recording them so I'll, i'll sit down at my drum set here and i'll start playing i'm like oh that's a beat that i like so i'll record it and i'll loop it and then i'll Think, oh, here's a bass line that I like. And I'll play that over that then a guitar line. Then I'll just think up some vocals off the top of my head and sing it. And then it's, it's usually done at that point. And that's what you hear on the CD is just a stream of consciousness sort of thing. Sometimes I go back and I'll re-record some parts or I'll do some overdubs or that sort of thing. But for the most part, a lot of that stuff was written and recorded within an hour or two. Would you say it had symmetry? Um, I'm going to test
1: out our various things, Would you, I, if we can keep going with this, because I yeah. think this is this is putting it all to the test, right? So in music, one might argue that there is symmetry:
0: mm-hmm.
1: beginning, middle, and end, or uh, a, 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 a lyrics, refrain, or yeah. a recognizable
0: theme. Yeah, I think that um, I, I go. I guess I go back and forth with that because. I have a pretty wide appeal i there's something very appealing to me about a, a pop song structure and that's a lot of what i release is a verse chorus sort of format and it's it, i don't do that to appeal to people i do that because i like it mm-hmm. but also i've done um progressive stuff i've written I've written a 40 minute long song. It's one song and nothing ever repeats itself and it goes through and it does different things. I've written a classical piece that, yeah, yeah. piece that's the same way. And to me, that is just as cool, but in a completely different. Does it have form? A progressive piece like that? I I think it does, but it's, it's form, it's form like, um, like being on the beach and watching the ocean, you see waves coming in. The waves are never the same, but they're similar. You know, it's like waves crashing on a beach is like a progressive album. And that is, whereas a pop song is like being at a wave pool. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Hey, I, I know. I know that when I hear the beep, this wave is going to come, and I'm going to jump and see how high I can ride or do this different thing. And it's a, it's a different sort of experience. Whereas being at the beach and watching waves crash is something that you could argue is deeper or different. But they both have a, a former. Yes,
1: they do. And that form that you're talking about with the, the greater with the waves and not being sure and how the, and the, I love to do outside just quick painting when I've gone to the ocean of, of waves to study this the structure of the waves, the, the patterns that are become very impressionistic and sometimes even abstract <laughs> in seeing the, 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 the patterns. So it becomes almost an algorithmic fractal. Thing. but if but if you look at uh, Mandelbrot um, mm-hmm. fractal images, those are inc- their form is ab- not absolute, but the form is f- very much obvious.
0: Yeah.
1: All right. So we've so we've established some of the ancient things that it has some kinds of symmetry or or chosen asymmetry that it has some kind of form that it offers an elevation out of oneself or rather into oneself, into exploring a moment. It doesn't necessarily have to have a wide audience. So you see you're, you're testing the the ideas of of, you're testing aesthetic ideas just by describing the process.
0: Right. Yeah. And so how do you think that that realism plays into that sort of thing so we we've talked about aesthetics and art and beauty and these things and so I think that it's it seems at this point pretty pretty certain that a human imagination has to play into into art but like we were just talking about there's different you you if you've seen a hyper realistic painting you're like you, you know that oh man, this is this is art, like somebody is, but it's almost like somebody doing Flight of the Bumblebees on, on guitar. There's a high level of technical uh, proficiency, it's a very um, yeah, an you know, accurate is, rendering, right? Whereas you see like um, a Picasso or something, and I think a, so a lot of people would argue that that requires more imagination, more innovation, but it's also more highly spurned, like the art art project you were talking about in Warsaw. Why do you think that is? Why do you think why do you think it's so valued to exactly replicate something that already exists, as opposed to trying to imagine or think of something that isn't right in front of you? I think people. This I, I won't. I, I I hasten
1: not to overgeneralize, but I think if you look at any aspect of human. Community, their, or human expression. People are afraid of the other. People fear that which they don't necessarily immediately understand. This is why education is so very difficult. You're mastering in education. I've spent a life in education. the 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 most imp, the, the most difficult thing to break through with people in order for them to learn is to try to help them in whatever possible way to get through past around whatever preposition you want. The the need to be right. Well, by all the gods, I can look at something and decide whether that is an accurate representation of a Chevrolet (laughs) or a horse running in a field. So I can know that it's right Therefore, I can be confirmed that I understand form of horse or form of car. And, 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 and it pleases me for a few moments because I look and say, yeah, there's a car. Good. And then we move on to something else in the flea market. Well, okay, you it it, 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 does it make you sit and look and think and feel? It's not that art always has to do that, but you you, you would expect that if you were going to hang a piece of art and never look at it again, then you have to ask why it's there in the first place. And so I think it's the fear of of the different.
0: Yeah, and I think that brings in a good, there's a word that sums this up. And I I was actually just reading about this um, yesterday, which is awe.
1: Yes, the sublime
0: and awe. Right, and then the funny thing that was, with the definition of awe, what I was reading is that, you know, it's something that, it's doesn't just inspire a wonder of some kind, but it's both a positive and a negative thing, but people almost universally describe it positively. Mm-hmm. People don't like to speak of negative awe experiences, and I think that that is sort of the determining factor. If you see a hyper-realistic painting, you're in awe of the artist's talent, yes. but like you are saying, it because it positively affirms notions that you have and things that you've experienced in real life whereas if you see an an abstract painting that's that's beautiful you're you might also be in awe but it's a it's a negative sort of feeling and i feel like that negative feeling of awe is what people shy away from when in reality that's the some the thing that people should embrace that's how science that's how education that's how every field advances is by a negative awe experience, all of a sudden realizing I don't understand something and rather than saying I don't want to think about this anymore thinking I need to think about this. More.
1: Yes, and that's that's education. Uh, now, now, just a side note, I'm not saying that the technical proficiency of someone who does a remarkable anatomical representation of a human being is an art. If I want to look at that and look at that and think about it and think about the body and think about what we are, to me, that's art because it's evoking that Ah, or that negative awe. You sent to me an article uh, about a, a major planetary physicist uh, a few days ago. A marvelous article out of Scientific American, which immediately informed two of my classes this week in science writing and in ethics. Because both classes were going at the conversation just went there. Uh, people were asserting you can't be scientific and, and be spiritual. And so I said, "Well, hmm, look at this." Right. <laughs> and then I opened a, a, a folder to show them. It's been sitting there: science and religion, science and religion. Well, that's that negative. What? What? Oh, what? You you can you can do both, and and for some people, that's a revelation, and that's an important one.
0: Yeah, and I, I I like that article because part of me didn't like that the headline because <laughs> the headline was meant to draw that of sort of that sort of controversial. Oh, you know, being an atheist is not scientific, and it's like, okay, well, there's your your grabbing headline, but when you get into the meat of the interview, it's like looking in a mirror. I'm like, this guy's just saying exactly what I'm saying, which is that you know to instinctively dismiss any idea out of hand is unscientific, like you have to, and it's it i mean without him knowing it this this guy he's a philosopher. I mean he's also a scientist. He's yes. a he's a well respected scientist, but beyond that, he's a philosopher, you know, and what he's saying is just Yeah, you know, when any idea, you have to look at it and examine what are the merits to it, you know? And so and, and aesthetics is just the same way. Right. Yeah. And so for somebody to, to- Right. So it, you can't like, you know, I, I would never look at a hyper realistic painting and say, well, I would just take a photograph instead. You know, and you also can't look at a a Picasso and say, oh, well, my five-year-old could do that. These two things are much beyond either one of those. And to just simplify it to the level of, oh, well, I could have taken a picture with my phone or my five-year-old could have done that, it's lazy. You're not expending the intellectual effort. You're not trying to make the emotional connection. You're not taking the time to walk around the the installation to to see the picture, to try to understand what's happening. Right. That's what, that's the human experience. That's aesthetics. That's what. uh, If you're being self-protective, then you can't
1: experience the piece. Mm. And then you can tell yourself you had a negative experience because really
0: you didn't experience it at all because you were too afraid to experience it. (laughs) So I think that that's great. And i'm I'm looking down at my note sheet and we didn't cover this topic in, in at all like I thought we were going to and it's awesome because I think we did it really great but I think that we should we should look at closing it out in um sort of tying up those ends talking about how art evolves throughout time and I think that that's really important with what we're talking about because you said how how people value art and what they value in art evolves over time. Um, but I think that especially nowadays we've talked about in previous podcasts with how modern society has, um, you know, just exponential technological advancements and there's attention, attention and focus. And these sorts of things are at a premium to such an extent that they're very very just small windows of opportunity to get a hold of people at, on a real level, you know. What do you think that that's what do you think that's going to do to art or already has done? I
1: think that art, well, as you said at the very beginning and this is a nice way to try to pull the jazz of this all together, that the very first things that are always budgetarily targeted are the things that are considered ephemeral? Well, who needs art? Who needs music? After all, as long as we've got the sports and the other kinds of things, and those can, those teach, there's a competition, it's an artificial and illogical, uh, it's a false argument that one has to compete with the other. They do not. Uh, but but if we always think if you are in a culture that thinks of an economy of scarcity as the primary principle if i have more you have less therefore i want what you got because there's only so much that we can have and that's, that's so much of what we do to ourselves rather than saying i can sit i can play plunk away at a dulcimer i can create a tune it's probably not something I would ever, <laughs> you know. Maybe, maybe I would try to comfort my granddaughter with it, but nobody else is going. Doesn't need to go out there, right? But that's still creating. That's being creative. It is. It is going beyond oneself. It's pushing oneself a little bit to get out of the routine. So, uh, I think that we we back to what you said so articulately. We 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 try to keep within bounds. We try to narrow, and we try to say, well, this is not really useful. It's not really important. But nobody ever says why, except to come to the, they do come to one thing, which is it's not practical. So if you, if you were working in a society and living in a society in which the primary thing is about What's practical? What's useful? What's pragmatic? How many bucks is this going to bring in? You know, you got to be thinking about the bottom line always because that's just what you have to do. Don't get your head up above the water. Just. And life's a set of obstacles. I got that out of the way. I got that out of the way. I got that out of the way
0: until there's nothing left to get out of the way. Right. And what's funny about that is that there's a sort of a paradoxical nature to the entire thing. If you think about it rationally which is that a lot of these people that they want to think of it in terms of resource scarcity we don't have the money to spend on these things that aren't important as they pour billions of dollars dollars into sports or into exploiting the world's scarce resources when in reality as you just pointed out the thing that they're they can't spend money on Arts, you know, writing, music, all of these things are things that are essential to enriching people's lives and things that by enriching people's lives like that cause them to engage with ideas that they might not otherwise. I think that there's an argument to be made that, you know, developing a philosophy program could definitely help with STEM programs, you know? Just by getting people to look at this, you know, there's music is a, is a mathematic, you know, and, and art, art is also perspective math. All of these things are mathematical. And I know from somebody who is not mathematically inclined originally, you know, engaging with these concepts outside of it and developing, not just developing a way of thinking about it intellectually, but developing, um, you know, an emotional and, and a way of wanting to engage with new ideas, new concepts, instead of being afraid of the unknown, wanting to embrace it. That's what, that's what adds some meaning to life. And when you look at things that we have problems with skyrocketing suicide rates and and drug overdoses and these sorts of things, it's almost a societal cry for help. It seems to me, you know, there's, there's something missing from people's lives And it's almost something that they're being deprived of in the name of practicality, in the name of, you know, and and I think that's what it comes down to is practicality, making people into cogs in a machine, you know, that's that's what it is. And people
1: are, are, are saying, no. I'm, I'm more than that, which, you know, if you want to do a really fast zipping through artistic, including film history from the early 20th century, when Charlie Chaplin was, did a film about that very thing where he was a guy in a little top hat and a cane and he's, he's pulled through the silent film, the cogs of a machine. You know, the we talk about the ghost in the machine. We've been there for in our own stuff. We, Pink Floyd. You know, and Zoom. We're going through all this and realizing, yes, it is a saying that there must be more to being human than making a living, marking our ourselves by how much we manage to make. How are we with other people? Do we stretch ourselves? Do we challenge ourselves, or do we just retreat? And 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 aesthetic. And and we just said that about philosophy a moment ago. That was helpful. The stem program, and I'm smiling because philosophy is the cauldron, the black cauldron. The the, the, the and I call it that because that's an ancient uh, Irish. Story, it is the cauldron out of which poetry arises. It is the cauldron out of which science arises. Natural science was philosophy back in the pre-socratics. Music and aesthetics arise from Pythagoras and so on. It's all back to philosophy. Philosophy is the absolute core, and we we often forget that,
0: yeah, yeah, and I mean, you look at, throughout history, you see you see the Socratics, and lots of people you know look at the um you know the Greeks and and that period of time. And you look at the art and you look at the scientific advancements. And you know some guy finding a well over here and a well over here and measuring the shadows and knowing the circumference of the earth and that sort of thing. And you wonder, well, what what happened between then and the Middle Ages? You know, and and a lot of it is. Well, look at look at the lives of the individual people. You know, you you can you can attribute it to the larger political systems, and I think that's completely fair. I think the larger political systems impact the individuals, which is what we're saying with the slashing of STEM programs and stuff. But you have to look at not just those big programs. You have to look at how they affect the individual to know what is happening with the society as a whole. And so when you look at the Greeks and you see these guys, you know, these master artists, master scientists, people who were just spending time sitting, thinking, and then talking with other people who were doing the same thing and, and coming up with these ideas. And then you look at the Middle Ages where people were just trying to survive. You know, they are trying to escape disease. They were trying to escape war. They were trying, you know. And the church was trying to guide them.
1: Right. And the church itself used art to try to guide them back to God. And the church reaching this is this is where the first graphic novel arose. People laugh when I say this, but it's because you know, eleven hundreds, twelve hundreds, when when you had uneducated population who could not read, they could not read scriptures. So what was done was that the, the church uh, hired artists who created triptychs, three-part panels, to do the beginning, middle, and the end of a biblical story that was going to be talked about in the church for a while that season. And so the the priest would put these panels out for people to look at while the priest is telling the stories, and they're using the art to internalize the stories.
0: Yeah, so that's a super interesting dynamic because during those Middle Ages, the church really kept literacy and art and those sorts of things alive when the populace wasn't. But then, towards the end, before the Enlightenment, you see the church censoring Galileo and some of these other people who were developing new knowledge. And I think that that perfectly demonstrates the point we were talking about earlier about being afraid of the unknown. You know, you can have, oh, we appreciate this because it's, positive to our image we don't appreciate this because it's something new or something that's contradictory to our image so rather than exploring it we're going to to shut it down and so there's positives and negatives to that that one institution and uh it's it's just a really cool idea and you know The show was great because the show had form. We started with history and we went through and we ended with history and it was very aesthetically pleasing and great. So it's awesome. Thank you for listening to From Nor to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. Recording production are provided by me, Joel Bouchard, and the song featured in the show is Questions off my album Jaguars, which you can find on Spotify or anywhere MP3s are sold. Until next time, keep pondering.